In this episode, we're talking to Nancy Snow. She's the program director of graphic design at OCAD University here in Toronto, Canada. And I'll just tell you, Nancy has extensive experience as a designer, both in studio and research. And now as an educator, she brings a wealth of knowledge and deep thinking to the ways we learn and interact with the information the world presents to us. I worked with Nancy on my master's thesis and it was the highlight of my graduate experience, forcing me lovingly, of course, to question things, to think bigger and to dig deeper. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Thank you so much for being here, Nancy, and for doing this for us. Uh, Before I jump into questions, I wondered if you could give us a little bit about your backstory and how you came to be a professor of graphic design at OCAD. It's it's always nice to hear to know everyone's journey, um, like to where to get to where they are today. So, if we could hear a little bit about that, that'd be great. Sure. Okay. Cool. Yeah. And it's really great to chat with you guys as well. So it's gonna be it's gonna be nice. Um, so how did I get here? Wow. That's could it could be a really long story, but let's not make it a long story. I'll be brief. So I can tell you. Mm, why don't I frame it like my motivation to be here? Like why, why did I want to, 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 uh, to be an educator? Um, and I think part of it comes from the fact that when I, when I came to study design, I actually didn't come to dis- to study design. I came to study sculpture. Oh. Um, when I first started out and I thought, I actually thought, okay, well I'll study sculpture. Um, and then I'll go on and, um, you know, maybe I'll get a, a subsequent degree in something else, history or English, or I don't know, something that would, I thought would complement an art practice. Um, and I was, I'm one of the first, I should say to, I'm, to contextualize it a bit. I'm one of the first, uh, family members. Uh, my sister and I are one of uh, the first few family members to get a higher education. So I come from a family of, um, of wonderful people, but just people that didn't go, um, didn't move on to higher education um, as their life progressed. So, um, you know, heading into, into university and then um, into graduate work was very unknown. My parents were so supportive of and excited for us, but they didn't understand it. They're like, we were so excited. You're going to go do these things. We don't understand it. We don't know what you're trying to do. Good luck off you go. So I think, and I think framing it or contextualizing like that's really important because it meant I didn't have sort of like even the illusion of a safety net in terms of support, because, you know, when you, you haven't had a lived experience in something, you don't know anybody else who has either navigating can be quite challenging. So I always think about how grateful I've been now in this moment, reflecting back of what it meant for, for faculty to support me in my education, who took the time to listen to me or explain things or meet with me after class or, you know, and then the people I worked with um, for uh, when I first started designing, like all of these people have contributed to to my learning and my growth as a designer, um, as a student. And I'm, so I think, of, I think about those experiences a lot. So, you know, I was a practicing graphic designer. I worked in all, in all kinds of different um, disciplines. As you know, graphic designers, we kind of end up um, working with a, a great variety of different uh, disciplines, different people. And um, 
so, you know, cause I, as I kind of made way, way along, I started to realize that being a graphic designer, I had this great education in making things, but that there was only one component of what it meant to be a designer, you know? And, and I think the other component is really culture. So I started to, to pick up on, I needed to know so many more things because graphic design is never unto itself. It's always in relationship to a great many other things. So realizing that I was like, wow, wouldn't it be great if that was actually put into the education? So when I was, um, so started to get more and more into education and started teaching. I, that's the, that's the area of interest in the practice I wanted to, um, to engage in. And I wanted to teach for so that students, the, the new, the next generation, somebody had contributed to my generation. I wanted to contribute to the next generation. Um, but give more, um, um, more awareness and engage people's practices more with, with the cultural components of what it means to be a graphic designer, because so much of the education focuses on the making. So I think that's kind of the motivation of, of what's, of what's led to me being here doing this work. And I, how grateful am I to be able to do that? Like what a great privilege to be able to teach. So you're speaking about designing for education. Tanya and I both have backgrounds in graphic design. Tanya runs a graphic design studio in Mexico, and I have worked in advertising and marketing and publishing companies as a designer and an art director. So we're practitioners, but we aren't educators. How is it different to design in the educational context, like to design curriculum or to design for other people's learning? And how do you know if your design is successful? Well, I have a joke I make all the time that like on my gravestone, I'm going to have something that along the lines of, or the plaque on my urn, whatever ends up happening to me when I, my body, when I go, it's something along the lines of like, at one point, Nancy almost wrote like a really good assignment. (laughs) Like she almost did it. It was so close. If she just had another hundred years, she would do great. Um, So I think it's like, I think it's recognizing there's a lot of parallels with education and being a designer, I think, because you are um, like you're designing and you're designing for this for complicated systems. So, you know, being a practitioner, you, you both know this, right? There's you're designing for all this complication. There's, there's all these components. You're not designing for one thing. You're designing for it's a context. You're designing for people. And you're designing for various people, not, and you don't even know who you're designing for half the time, because who knows where, like, once this thing that you make goes out into wherever it goes, what happens to it? How do you track it? It's not like we have a little tracker, or it's not like we have, you know, we can capture people viewing what we do. Oh, we, well, we're, maybe we're starting to, but you know what I mean, right? Like, it's very challenging to really, um, like follow through the life cycle of something you make and graphic design is so ephemeral too. Right. So it's of the moment it's instant. And then, you know, it, it goes away and the next thing comes. So I, but I think that there's a lot of parallel with that to being a graphic designer. Right. So it's, 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 it's a lot of the practices you think you use as a graphic designer, you bring into being a teacher because you're trying to make connections with people. And so one of the beliefs that I really became aware of when I was doing my, um, my graduate work, the thing I became aware of is that what I wanted to pay attention to as a designer, and what mattered most to me was, was the communication part, right? It's about, it's about like that access to information. How do I access information? How does somebody do it? What's, what do you include? What do you exclude? Because in graphic design, there's often a, a reduction approach, like reduce it down to its simplest form. And ooh, wait a minute, we'll talk, I'm sure, later about like that, the problem with that but 
really like, it's the same with education. How much do I give you? Like how much information do you need to do the thing you need to do? So in a classroom, you have, you know, you have all the components of a, of a, of a studio classroom. You've got an assignment, you've got a grading rubric, you've got critique, you've got the physical environment, you've got your peers. There's all these components that come together. So how do you foster a space with all these things coming into play, many of which you don't have control over, nor should you, and then, you know, so what, what do you bring into that? That's, you know, that's kind of the trick of it. So I feel like that's a lot to do with the designer. What gets included? What don't you include? What can you augment depending on the person's needs in front of you? Because the students have the goal and the learning of the assignment. They have to learn something, right? They're going to do something, make something, think something, share something, iterate on something. But then on the other hand, what are their goals as individuals? What are they coming with? What do they want to do? What do they want to achieve? So those two things are kind of living in, like, you know, in articulation with each other. So when I think about all of that, how do you plan for that, right? And then how do you know if it was effective, which I think is like the other part of your question too, right? Like, how does it work? Does it work? Um, it's a, you don't know. So um, a really applied thing I do to kind of figure that is I do a lot of reflective writing with the students. So I never mark or I never look at a project without them having some kind of verbal, whether they speak it or whether they write it, um, to share with me what they did when they made this. Because then, I mean, if I'm just marking, you know, like if we all do graphics for a cup, I don't know, we don't ever do that. But if we, I'm just being, it's just the thing in front of me. We don't ever do that. But yeah, we understand. You know what I mean? Yeah. If we did that, um, like, you know, like, how do I put it? Like, um, it's, it's never just about the object. It's about the intent behind it. It's about how they got there. It's about what they tried to do. It's, there's so many pieces. So if they write about their making and they tell us what they did and how they got there, that to me is always more interesting. Otherwise, I'm marking myself. I got to see this. I can see that. Who cares what I see? doesn't matter. What did they, what did they do? So if they tell me that I'm far more confident to under, like I'm far more confident, I'm closer to marking them and giving them feedback on them versus what I think. Cause really like, who cares? <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Like it doesn't matter what I think of their work. It matters what they did and what they learned. So, yeah. So I think there's a lot when you're putting things together, that, re that reflection often then to guides what I'll do next year with that assignment. Because I see a pattern when I look across those reflections, like if people were missing something and there was more that there's like half your class is missing a certain detail. That's on me. I didn't, I clearly didn't communicate something properly. I clearly, I didn't help people make connections. So, you know, you look at the ones that did and then you, you try to figure, so you're always, it's like putting together a big puzzle all the time. I think that's probably the way I would like sum you're it up. Always, you're always like collecting data. Mm -hmm. Always. Researching. <laughs> Always. It's how my brain works. <laughs> you know, uh, for me, like, uh, like Soya said, I, I work in, a, in a, I have a, a design comp studio in Mexico City and many students that just graduate come and work with us. So, so I have many, many individuals that graduate and start because one of the things since we're a, a small studio that we've been able to hold is that we never hire on top of you it's always like a, a little ladder so in in that sense everybody if someone 
goes away, it's not that sad because the the the, the ladder you you will be. And we're constantly trying to make the the designers work 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 to be prepared. So the 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 new new designers are always just graduated, and so when every time they they get in the studio at the beginning, we always see them with like. Scare, scared eyes they're always really scared they're very <laughs> nervous and the the thing is that i see that once the speed is something that they the speed uh, the action that is in the studio is one thing they have trouble but they yeah. get adjusted yeah. the thing and that's what where my questions goes is with the thing that i see that them struggling the most is the relationship with the client and that's something that we take a lot of care with them and we don't release them that openly because clients can be tough, especially, I don't know how it is in Canada, but in Mexico city, they, they are tough. They are, they are not so nice while they to mm -hmm. give feedback. And sometimes they, we've seen that they are very rude, especially if they see that they are young and especially to some women, they have been, we have found that. So I have a, I have like an area of opportunity. I always make the same mistake about like bias action that I get like super uh, angry and I just say like, no one treats people like that in my company. And I would like <laughs> get super mad. And 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 then I, I realized uh, that, that that isn't always the way to go as, as helping them give them a voice. But I've always struggled with that. Like I... I as a like and i feel, feel like how can i solve that how can i help with that right so i guess are you are you are you you're kind of looking for a way like there's a few things there i think are you are you trying to find like a way to empower them, empower them <laughs> like are you want you want to empower them and to teach them and teach them yeah it's oh isn't that a tough one like it, we all know that eh? that it's is like the me biggest nut to crack. And I know, um, and it's funny, I remember when I was, when I was coming up designing, there was a, um, one of the, one of my classmates I graduated with, um, he and I used to um, meet up on occasion and we'd meet up sometimes at like midnight at this like restaurant and we would, you know, share stories and ideas because we were trying to like recreate our student support networks together mm -hmm. and be like, how do you deal with this? Like, how do you present or how do you, Like, how do you get across what you're trying to say? Because you realized half of your job was making, but this other half was this compelling language you had to come up with to convince people why they wanted to take a certain approach. Or, yeah, so, you know, it's funny. This almost connects back to the very first question, right? Like, as a designer, aren't we always kind of educators? Because I feel like I spend so much of my time, even to this day, when I meet with a client, like, with, or in a client position, I have to like educate them on what they're, what they actually want. And I don't mean that, like, I'm going to tell you what you want. I mean, like, they don't even know really what they're asking for. Right. Or how they're asking for it. Like, you know, like um, recently someone asked for something and it, they were really alluding to spec work. And then I had to go on this whole thing where I had to explain what spec work was, like how no one goes to an accountant and says, okay, there's three accountants in line for this job. So I'd like you to tell me how you're going to work the books for this. And then if I like how you do it, I'm going to hire you. So you better do a good job on the, like, no one does that. That's, that's bananas. Right. So like, I don't ever think of that happening. So 
you know, when it comes to this idea of like relating to clients or how did they, how do you get them to do that? That is a really tough thing to do because there's a lot of, there's a lot of moving parts to that. Right. So I, I think I feel your, your challenge. And so how do you, how do you, how do you, do you model behavior? Do you get them to practice in advance? Because they really also have to be like um, improv artists too. Do you know what I mean? Like you have to think in the moment, like, how do you, like, how do you frame, how do you tell a story? And I think, you know, storytelling might be a great way to start with, 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 with new designers, because then they can learn how to tell a story to relate to the client. And I think sometimes that, that can be a great method because it's also a really great research interviewing method. Zoya, you know, you know me, I'm always like, tell me a story, I love it. Um, but it, it can actually be a great way, right? Like, so people tell you a story about what, what, they're, what they want, or if when you're sharing your design work, you're telling them a story. People remember stories, they can go back and share them with other people. And um, they often make, they lower people's defenses because you're right, student, like clients can be rude and they can say really rude things. And, and, and even though you're talking about something that maybe has to go out to say a certain audience, right? Like let's say you're talking to something that's gotta go out to an audience. And because um, you have a pretty good target, a targeted space for where something's going. Um, and they start talking about their personal interests. Like it doesn't matter that you don't like blue. It's yeah. not a, it's not for you. Right. Nope. So, right. So it's, I think it's that kind of thing. It's like, how do you help someone see their own biases? How do you help someone see, you know, um, and there's a power dynamic at play too, right? Like there's, there's a job on the line, right? So this poor new designer coming in, they need to uphold the company value they work for. So for your studio, it would be, you know, they'd be looking to you. They're also looking to the client. If they make them angry, are they going to lose the job? Are they going to get fired? Are they going to, so it's, you know, there's a lot of power at place. So I think it's about maybe starting with the power dynamics for sure. and, rec- and recognizing it like that. But I don't know, like what, what have been your strategies? I'd be curious to like, you know, your go-to thing is, is kind of like getting angry, but have, like, yeah, we had I, to I guess, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm so curious, like, that's where I would go and ask you, tell me your story. Where, where have you helped that young person? Like, has there been a moment where you've had somebody have like a really well, good, always, successful moment? Yeah. Well, like we've always said that from the beginning that there, there is no, that we won't allow, like always calm them down saying that we will always protect them versus the client. So when it comes to being rude, mm-hmm. so that it's not allowed and that. Uh, we can't always defend them because sometimes mm-hmm. like growing up means starting to get to know clients and run the projects by themselves. And that's something that they also find interesting because m- most of them uh, go on and do their own studios. So that's something they, they want to learn, but at the same time, they're a bit scared. Mm-hmm. So what, what we've done is for sure, I'm just saying that never on the phone, like if, if, if there's some, if they're being rude, just like in the in the in the possible in the most possible way, just like uh, cut the conversation close and say, "I'm gonna with this conversation will continue by mail or with chat or Tanya or my other associate will call you," and that's how we start. And we always like what's happened like a little bit that I that I that it has helped is for for starting. I always say like to the client that 
we don't work like that in the studio. Like we do not communicate. Like no, none of these designers are used to being yelled because we right. don't yell. Right. And they're not used to being rude because we are not rude. So mm -hmm. to start it, like this, this conversation is a shock. And by seeing that we don't get mad anymore, like the, the designers, this was like a long, again, when I engaged in defending and it didn't work. Mm -hmm. So now it's yeah. like, we, we stay as calm as possible and it's like, we won't get mad. Right. Even though, even though we've been faced with many very, very, very unethical and wrong things that, that you would be amazed. Like, yeah, like, in, like. I, I remember once that I was in a in a place and they were doing like a we were designing a product that was like very expensive, and I and the designer that I brought came. Uh, it was obvious he came from a background that maybe he had never afforded that or mm. whatever a service. It was a very high and like in front of that people he said like, why do you bring someone that can't even afford it in in front of the the designer? So I was like take like 30 breathing and don't answer and that kind of stuff. And then we end up giving up that, that job. But like, like you say, like the designer is watching me and the client is watching me and saying, what's going to happen. <laughs> right. Yeah. So much is on you. I think, yeah, but you know, what's interesting about, about that too, is that um, that's that all of that is so baked in what we do, right. Is class. Right. Yeah. Like I would keep, like, I want to say, would your mother want you speaking to somebody like that? Like, does your mother know you just said that to somebody? Like, you should be ashamed of yourself. Like, that's a terrible thing to say to somebody. Um, yeah, so I, I, oh, that's terrible. Um, they tell me, like, when does your boss will come? And I'm like, I'm, I'm here. I'm the designer. And they're like, you? And I was like, yeah, me, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. I bet if we did a, uh, poll and we polled every female designer they would have a story of that like I don't know anybody I don't know anybody that doesn't have a story like that being told that oh you're the designer <laughs> like yeah yeah it's me <laughs> yeah yes I guess teaching that has been hard teaching them just they graduated from a normally they're very happy environment they're very proud of their university they love yeah. their teachers they come like super happy and then hearts broken by the clients right yeah yeah well that's and I think that's the hard thing too it's like this is a question we always have too because you know like what are we like what are we teaching when we teach graphic design like what's our like you know it, it, the four years goes by so fast so when we think about it we're so focused I think on the practice of design and then I know my focus is not only the like the 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 making practice, but all the other pieces that kind of come along with it in terms of culture, notions of good taste, those kinds of things. So, you know, getting at those things are kind of a tall order. Um, and then how do you add in this, this like coding on the outside of all of that to, to help them transition into um, a workplace? And to me, I don't know, like we've always, we have this, actually, we have amazing group at the, at our university at OCAD with, uh, they're called SEED, um, the CEAD, which is the Center for Emerging Artists and Designers. And so they're kind of like this, this, this co-curricular piece for us, because I, I think separating the two out can be, I feel like that seems like it's helpful. So having the academic, the teaching of, of, of making and design, and then having this 
this other this other like connected piece where students can go and learn those kinds of things that you're getting at i think that i really see a great future with the relationship with that particular group at the school because they then they can focus on that because i really think it's like a different it's related but it is a different set of skills right because i mean what do i want to do do i want to create a classroom where i'm yelling at people so they can get used to being treated badly Oh, I definitely don't want to be doing that. <laughs> Terrible. Like, that's not the kind of education. I, I want to do more of what you're doing, where people are establishing meetings with respectful rules in place. Like, this is how we're going to speak to each other. And this is how we're going to conduct ourselves. And, and establishing those good behaviors and practices. I don't want to be teaching students how to be abused um, in the workplace by being yelled at, right? I don't want to contribute to that. So I think having this, this co-piece, this co-curricular piece, I think has been... Like it's been very successful so far for so many students, but I just think that I want to see that part of it grow more because I think, and I'm so grateful for the relationship with the folks that work in that department. They're the best people. I just think they're fantastic. They work so hard and they're so diligent um, in, in protecting the students' rights, um, ensuring good contracts and negotiations. Like in February, um, a couple of the faculty are working with that group um, to produce like a pricing, a pricing um, workshop. Yeah, so what's going to happen with that group is, um, so it's between faculty, it's between the CEAD, and they're going to come together, and um, because we've had so many students because of COVID um, graduate, but then graduate into freelancing, and so now they have to learn how to price things. So they're starting to realize they, you know, the things you're pointing at, how do I work with a client, is, is something that they're missing. And so um, having those workshops that are directly targeted to those things, um, I think it's gonna be a great experience for the students. And who we're bringing back to do it is other like recent graduates who've had the experience to do that kind of pricing and that kind of work to come back in to, to share their experiences. So these are people that, you know, that peer to peer kind of works instead of having somebody come and talk, you know, it's so far removed from them. So I think that that piece, I feel really, I feel really good about it. And I hope that we get to build more and more of those kinds of relationships as we go. So that way, when you, you know, you running a studio hire somebody, you, they've got a bit of that experience, you know, and it doesn't come from the academic side of the house. It comes from this other side. And I think having the two separate is also um, a good strategy for like a few different reasons, but I think it'll, it'll kind of start to address the things you're talking about. Thank you very much. Yeah, no problem. That sounds exciting because no one taught me how to price, right? Like, I, I kind of floundered and sometimes I still don't know what to price. It's always like a learning curve, like a very steep learning curve. So I think that's really exciting. Well, it's such a different skill set too. It's project management, right? So it's project management and accounting. Like, I don't know, as a director, like as a designer, you're almost a director, Right. Like I've got to learn all these different things and, and coordinate them all. It's, you know, it, it, I, you know, you're juggling all these balls. It's just. Whew. <laughs> so you spoke a little bit about power dynamics just now and class as built into what we're doing and culture. So that brings me to my second question of decolonizing design. So OCAD has this initiative about decolonizing design. And I know there's a lot in design and in art that's a part of a class structure. And I wondered in what ways do you find part of decolonizing design education as necessary and how does that trickle into graphic design? Or let's just say, how does it trickle into visual communication? Because I think at OCAD there's graphic design, there's also an advertising program. So how does it trickle into visual communication? Yeah, so in in the design faculty, we have advertising, illustration, graphic design, 
material art and design, industrial design, and environmental design. Right. Oh man, I hope I didn't forget anybody. Oh, forgive me, gang, if I forgot somebody. Um, I think we, I think I did all right there. Um, and so yeah, so there's a lot, and yeah, there's so you can see there's communication design, fabrication. We've got lots, lots going on there. So um, institutional wide, we have what's called our academic plan, and that covers this component. So as a community, the entire institution has um, like a set of values they're working towards. So there's lots of initiatives across the university um, as a whole to address, um, like to start to address and start to work through what does this look like in practice, right? Because you know, when you read an academic plan, they're always lofty, right? They're, they're almost more visionary, but it's like, how do you make those things actionable? So, you know, it's that, if, if that's where many of us are interested in working. So the idea of decolonizing design really gets forefronted by the Dean, Dori Tunstall, because that's her, um, her platform that she's building out um, to as a way to talk about it and as a way to share it. So what does that look like to decolonize design? Um, and it, it does need, of course, it needs to be decolonized because if you think about what graphic design is, I mean, it's born out of the industrial revolution, right? Like mass means of production led to, to the need to um, reproduce things, but look at the ways in which it's gone. It's, it's a, it's a very much um, practiced and still taught in many ways, not everywhere and not all the time, but you know, there's a great deal of approach taken up, which is about reductionism. You, you know, the simplest, Oh, keep it simple, keep it clean. Like, I mean, how many times have we heard that? that language when we talk about design. But what does it mean when we say that? Keep it clean. Ooh, whoa, that's loaded, right? Keep it simple. What does that mean, right? So we think of these graphic forms. Um, but what, what are we really doing when we do that? You know, is it like, are we erasing culture when we do that? Well, that seems pretty colonial to me. So, you know, we, and I, you know, we see examples of it all the time, right? Because, you know, um, different cultures create graphic design in different ways different aesthetics are appealing to different groups of people so you know there's not one way to make graphic design there's like many many ways and for many different reasons so we have to look at like what languages do we use how do we frame things what examples do we give in our classrooms so like let's look at our just some very basic components of the studio classroom space who is prioritized in those spaces what work do we show how do we talk about that work how many, how many great, great male designers do we have that we are just now starting to realize had women who were in the same positions in them, had the same titles as them, produce the work we look at, we didn't even know those women existed. Like that's, you know, there's this myth, I think you look at uh, TV shows like Mad Men, you know, that, that popular advertising um, piece. And they act like that one character is the first female to ever write ad copy which is ridiculous tons of women wrote ads tons of women did all kinds of work they just never spoken about they didn't make the magazine covers they didn't make the documentaries on design they didn't make the history books right so it's you know there's so much work that we have to do in graphic design um, about how we speak about our work how we showcase our work uh, what work we prioritize to show to our students um, so I have an amazing colleague I worked this year with um, Michelle Astrug in um, for our, our second year course and we did we're doing motion design it so we looked at a lot of video work so her and I made a commitment that we would uh, ensure that the bulk of the work we showed whether it was the work of the people behind the camera or in front of the camera um, that they would be um, representative of 
a great many um, cultures and great many makers. So we forefronted like indigenous um, uh, directors and indigenous makers. We forefronted um, uh, by all kinds of BIPOC community members, um, black um, artists, designers, because we really, we thought like, if you're in the room and we're showcasing you, why are we showcasing only a bunch of white people, which was, which happens a lot. Like if you do an audit of, of the examples in classes, it's a bunch of like white people and it's a bunch of white men. So why are those the only people that get to be showcased? Great many designers out there. So we purposely set out to do it. And it seems like, you know, shouldn't we kind of always been doing that? It seems like silly that we never even like, why are we doing that? So we, you know, that's what we chose to, um, that's what we chose to focus on. And um, like as one small component, but there's like, there's tons of others. How do we speak to our students about the ways in which we, they make things, how, what they're trying to do, um, how we frame critique. So there's just, there's so much of the language in, in the components of the classroom that, that, that come from these colonial structures that we need to start to work to get rid of, right? Because they're doing harm in the classrooms. Um, you know, and it's interesting, we had a student who graduated recently who came back, who's struggling to find work because those spaces aren't available in practice. So that's the other piece, like we were here, we were doing this work in the classroom, but what happens when the student leaves us, you know, and because they come in as juniors or they become, as they come in as these emerging designers, um, they don't have the power to affect change. So they come into these hostile environments that don't have this and it's a concern. So, you know, how do we help the students navigate that? So I'm hoping that um, next year, that's something maybe we can have talks about or address to say, okay, what are you experiencing when you're going into studio? Are you getting yelled at, right? Are those comments getting made to you? Or oh, you're the designer, like <laughs> to the women who, who step in the room. And a lot of our students in our classroom, they're women. So we, you know, like, how do we, how do we address that? So what are we doing for the design community at large to do this? Because it's great that we at the institution are looking at these things, but, you know, these students leave and go out into systems are we positively affecting change within the systems themselves? Do you think there's more female designers than male designers? I was, I was just thinking as you were speaking about mostly females in your class, and I was just thinking at the art department at work, which is uh, more than 15 people. I can't count them all. I might be leaving somebody out, but it's more than 15 people, and we're mostly women. Are there more female designers than male designers, you think? Yeah. Um, I'd love to, you know, we should look at some of the organizations and see like the AIGA or the RGD. It would be good to look at those groups and say, who do you have as your membership? Yeah. How many of your members are male? How many are female? You know, what are the demographics of the community? It'd be really interesting to see what that, what that breakdown would look like. But I know in the classroom, I'm seeing a lot more females when I st started studying design there were far more men than than women but that's changed over the years for sure way more women in in design than it classrooms seems to be a little bit of a trend throughout all design disciplines I think it's, got mm. it's moving because I think um also we were talking about something I don't remember what we were talking about but we were talking about architects the other day Tanya mm. and I know like architecture was a lot it was very male dominated in the past, but there's a lot of female architects now that, I don't know, it's the age of female, that's all I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, I, I know lots of, of women who are in, um, in architecture, yeah, and it's still a, it's still a tough go. Mm -hmm. I remember when I started practicing graphic design, 
um, I realized I had to build a good relationship with printers. So I learned how to drink scotch so, and talk about scotch. So I, could, I had to perform super male to, to work with a lot of printers. And they were lovely men. Don't, it's not that they were rude to me, but I knew. They could feel it. You knew how to negotiate your spaces because you're like, okay, I need these guys to listen to me because I need, if I'm going to be on press with this guy at two o'clock in the morning, I need him to hear me. I need him to believe I could do this work, you know? And then I knew what I was talking about. So yeah, so it's, isn't that like here I have to appreciate scotch just to be able to like throw down with these printers. I, it was it was nuts. <laughs> I do remember as well when we started um, the inclusive design program and um, it might've been the summer intensive and we had um, Gail as one of our professors. She's lovely and she, her background's in architecture. And I do remember her sharing like her stories, like, you know, it was very, she's tough. <laughs> she's very tough. She mm-hmm. came from a very male space and so forth. Yeah. And it's, it's wrong, right? Like I, I, I kind of resent it now. Like, why did I have to behave that way? Like, who am I? Who am I really like as a person? I don't even know sometimes because I'm like, you're formed by your experiences. And I think like, who would I have been if I didn't have to behave that way? Yeah. Like I I think about that all. Yeah. I think about it uh, often. Like what would that have been like if, if I don't know if I'd grown up in a different way or seen things a different way or experienced things in a different way that weren't so like that didn't, teach me I had to perform males in order to be successful you know and I think you see that in a lot of our of our elders right like a lot of the women that have come before us you know there's a pattern in how they behave and I don't like there's enough consistency in those patterns where you say did we do that to you did our environments do that to you that you that you need to function that way it's I don't know it's, it's kind of super unhealthy I hope and that's hopefully the change we can make too right like with this next generation like I think some things got better with us, but what about this next generation coming up? You guys don't have to behave like that. Like you, you don't. Like, they don't. Yeah. Yeah. You don't have to do that. Like we can just, you know, we're all here to make, make, make stuff. And <laughs> we don't have to do this to, to be heard or seen. So yeah, that's kind of the name of the game, I guess. Right. What we're trying to do, you know, uh, these are the kinds of things I think people need to hear too right the the next generation kind of coming up and i think even ourselves we need to remind ourselves that we don't have to do these things like these are these are traditions that came up and if we i guess if we stop and think about their origins like where did they come from why are we doing this and do we have to keep doing this moving forward right like i always i always kind of think you know when we talk about things like decolonization or we talk about things like um you know these these big systemic changes that we need to do um, I'm like, it's easy to, it's easy to go after the overt, right? Like when we think of like a bad guy, you know, the twizzling, the mustache, you know, tying the woman to the train tracks, old timey bad guys, like, you know, it's, it's obvious to be like, that's the bad guy, right? But that's not how the real world works at all, right? And I mean, the real world, what does the real world even mean, right? Like, what does that even expression mean? Um, but it's in all of us, like these things are systemic. And so it's like, as a person, I mean, you, you've got to go through and say, okay, what about, like, I've grown up without questioning certain aspects of my life. So now I need to, I need to, I need to do the work not only in, you know, with, with the university, but also personally, because I don't want my children growing up this way, right? I don't want to go out there and do harm because I never thought to question some of the expressions I had. I never thought to question. And I'll, I, every now and then I think, oh man, what have I done over the years 
where I did harm and I didn't even know I'd done it. So I think that you, it's personal too. You have to do the personal work. So I know like my sister and I, we get together and we'll read books together. So we read like, you know, like decolonizing wealth and looking at how, how the structures of wealth have led to these, these systemic issues. Cause again, we're all part of this big ecosystem. So it's not just design that needs to change. There's like aspects of our lives that need to change. And so I think if I start that work personally too, right. With my family, with, with, with me, then I think that's, that's a part of it too. Cause then I'm just like, I'm, I'm really living what I'm saying and it's, and it's really hard, right? Because there's, there's been fallout from that. Um, and it's been tough, but it's, I know it's the right thing to do. And so even then that's to me, that's, you know, I always thought when things are hard, can I do what I'm saying? Can I really do it? And so every time I do it, I'm like, yeah, I, oh, I didn't even like in that moment I did, my instinct was to do that. Yeah, I nailed it. And there's sometimes where I'm like, I didn't do the right thing there. I hesitated or I didn't say something when I should have. And so, you know, I think it's just constantly reminding yourself that it's like, it's your whole life it's going to take to do this. Right. And then, you know, so I think it's just recognizing it's not this big, easy fix. It's all these little things that are going to add up to something and it's going to have to add up over time. And so if I remind myself of that and I, and I keep going, I think in 10 years, I'm going to come back and high five like me today to be like, yeah, you know, five years, there were some changes we did and good for us. But um, yeah, so that's, I can, that's how I'm kind of thinking of it right now, because I, at first it gets overwhelming because it's really hard to change the thing you can't see. Yes. And that's really, really, really hard. Um, but you, you've got to do it. So how do you do it? And so you do it and you're messy and you're awkward and you mess it up but you just still got to keep going anyway so I just kind of remind when I when I don't get it right I kind of remind myself that and then what can I learn from it and how what else can I change and so I think that's it's just messy kind of work but it man it's got to happen because like no one can have the excuse anymore you know like you know it you know you know so how can you if that's worse to me right like knowing and not doing anything that's worse yeah one thing to be ignorant we can't all know everything, but boy, when you know, and you're going to keep doing it, what are you doing? Like, that's just worse. <laughs> just, no, that's worse. Can't do that. So, yeah. So we were discussing, Tanya and I, that like we've gone from graphic design and we're now trying to move into inclusive design solely. And in doing that, one thing that came up when we were putting everything together, like for Manifold, the brand, the website, launching the website we realize that an overlap is visual accessibility. So I did not put together this the site, like Tanya Nahin designed it, and I completely resigned from my graphic design duties on this project. But I watched how much work went into it because one thing we wanted to ensure is, is if our company is about inclusive design and accessibility, then our site needs to be fully accessible. So I watched and they did so much work on the back end of the site, you know, to make sure that the screen readers would work and that the colors and the text, they all pass all the accessibility checks and so forth. And I just felt like for some reason, I don't feel like that mindfulness and awareness of visual accessibility was there when I was learning graphic design. Like we did so much emphasis on legibility through typography, but not legibility in terms of disability. And it seems like a really big gap that's 
it's not something that we focus on. Right. Yeah, no, I think that's, that's a great point. I think it goes back to my earlier kind of comment where I was saying how like, as I was a as I was a practicing designer, I recognized I was missing so much of, of like, it was like my education needed to be like a decade long so I could cover up all these things. Because in practice, you start to realize there's these gaps, right? Accessibility, um, ageism, sexism, racism, like all of these things. And that's what I think like that's, you know, the, the, the cultural components of graphic design hides in plain sight. It, it, it really does. So yeah, exactly. I think I agree. My education did not cover off a lot of that. And it's a lot of stuff I learned in practice. Um, and as I went along, but I think there is, there is, there is change coming in that, in that regard. Like I know, um, um, we just redesigned our curriculum at the Institute and, you know, we really favored, um, some of the type classes in the early years. And those type classes do start to get at that information to say too about what it means to be, to have something be accessible. So I know we have a great um, sessional faculty member and he, that's one of his areas of expertise and actually why he was hired to teach type was because of accessibility. So there was even emphasis put on place to, to do that. Um, and even us, we've been, we've been working to, um, with our hiring strategies, um, really looking at how we can we can get better at ensuring we have a, a better representation with with faculty so even culturally um, as well as things like accessibility so it's happening but it's you know these things um they're interesting to watch unfold too because you see how excited the students get to learn it like they feel like they're learning something real quote unquote right like i'm learning this real thing and it's like yeah this is a real thing so having production components um within and I think a lot of times when we think of production we think of printing but that's not the case right like there's production means how does this thing get produced and distributed and it's that is a big piece of that so yeah I would argue there's a lot of work being done to to make that shift happen in the education yeah you're you're right you always bring the the right language to what I, I don't know how to say it I was like Oh yeah, that is production when you were saying, I don't know why I did not put it in that category before, because I think I learned production when I was on the job. Like mm. I, I got like a crash course when I was doing my degree, but I really mm-hmm. learned it when I went into advertising and then that was the component of my on the job learning. So right. Like, yeah. And I think that's most of us. Like we did have a wee bit of production in, in class because I think, yeah, like when I was studying, we did have a bit of production, but no, it's, it is mostly on the, on the job that you learn those things, right? Because it's like, because those systems are put in place and you work with those systems. Um, and those systems aren't always put in place in, in educational um, assignments. I know, like, for example, this year, um, we actually, in our, the class I was talking about that we've written with my colleague, we actually taught a research method in that class. We've never taught research methods in the studio classes. So we actually taught people how to interview. So I was so excited, like, here you are, second year, graphic design, and you're going to learn how to conduct an interview respectfully. We, we worked, we wrote an REB application for the, for the class. Um, we taught people and explained to people about respectful practices when you interview, how to handle the data. So it's all that production, like, where does this person's data go? What do you do with it? What's raw data? How do you then anonymize it? How do you, how do you um, make it for production? How do you get the sign-off from the person you've interviewed? And then they made this motion graphic response to that piece. So they're learning making practices, but they're also learning the research methods 
So I think we're starting to get to a point in our culture where we can actually, like in our design studio culture, actually start to bring these things in. And that to me is part of the production as well. What happens before you make the graphic designed thing? actually putting it into place. So things like research methods that will be very practical for many of these students and these production pieces, accessibility. In, in um, Ontario, we have the AODA. So we're, we have to be compliant with these things. Like they're actually like policy here in, the, in our province and in our country, we have policies around, you know, accessibility. So as a graphic designer, you better know them, right? Um, and if they don't get baked into the studio practice, like holistically, oh, like they, they, you won't have those, those habits and they really are habits. So our last question is about designing for more inclusive representation. Um, we were talking about, you know, in graphic design or in visual communication, messaging tends to skew towards younger people and tends to forget about more mature people, for example, unless maybe the product is specifically intended for senior citizens or a specific age group or something. And even then, you know, graphic designers can fail in packaging, for example, like using really small type when it's um, a, a product for a more mature age group. Um, that said, packaging design is very limiting in itself. Um, but with culture and uh, society always skewing towards a certain type of representation, I don't even know how it's possible, but how do you think it's possible for designers to be more mindful of these type of things and building more inclusion? That's a great question. Um, and there's all, oh, there's so many answers to that. I think, cause again, there's, we, we, we have to think about the system at play, right? So there's a couple things that are happening. So I think about, like a lot about packaging. I remember um, there was a food company who made a package that was biodegradable. And I can't, it was like a potato chip or a popcorn. And I, oh, I, I'm sorry, I can't remember which company it was. But what they did was um, they made this biodegradable packaging, which everyone's like amazing, right? Because you know you have those foil packages that these snacks come in. It's not, re it's not recyclable. It's garbage, and it's temporary. Like you eat your snack and then it gets thrown away. So they created this thing. But what happened was the packaging was super loud, like super loud so it would crinkle and it turned out that they received like an incredibly high number of complaints about this package and the reason why is people were taking the package and they were hiding it so maybe it was like a, there was a lot of these moms would like take the package and like try to eat like eat one and then the kids would hear it and then like oh my cook you know and then they so they got all these complaints so here this company is trying to actually make a package that's biodegradable and amazing and for all the right reasons. So sustainability is huge and should be important in any packaged item. But it was the consumer response to the package that they actually took it off the shelf. And it was for this really, really, and it was like repeated enough that it became kind of a thing. Like it was this thing why this package got canceled. Um, and I think about it with all kinds, but like that's just one example, but there's so many, like, so that idea of that model that you're hiring, people sometimes, you know, they won't buy things that they're like, well, that's not what I really look like. So there's a societal component, like we've, we've made a world where we're trapped by our own nonsense, right? I know at the university, we're having trouble getting students to turn their screens on. They, like, so we teach to all these little Zoom or uh, Teams, Microsoft Team dots, right? Like these little 
un, they're not people, they're little, little shapes. Um, and so one student said, well, you know, I don't want to put my, my screen on because I don't like the way I look. And that's like such a, they're not being vain. They're just self-conscious. Well, no wonder somebody's self-conscious. Look at the world we've created. We, we told people they have to look a certain way. They have to behave a certain way. So we've created this world that traps us in these kinds of things. So we produce packaging because, you know, um, people want it to sell. So they're, they're, they're beholden to a product to sell it. So, you know, if, if it's, it's so that we have to almost create a culture that accepts that, that accepts those changes too. Right. So I think there's a, there's this back and forth because there's a cycle here. It's the consumer as well as, as the producer. Um, but I think, so that's sort of my big picture thought on that, but I think more specifically and really to get to your question, that's all well and good, Nancy, you point your finger at somebody else. Nice job. What are you accountable for? So let's talk about that. Cause I think that's really more what your question is getting at, right? Is like, what are we accountable for? And this is one of the things about the myth of the rock star designer, right? Where you're the designer as you're really designing for yourself. So I think the question comes down to like, how do we remind ourselves as designers? We're not designing for ourselves. So who are we designing for? So this is where that's the best question, right? Like, who is this for? So, I, and then, um, oh, and then there's another sort of societal or a systematic piece here too with like packaging, because so much of that is held to regulation and policy, right? So the point size, it can't be below this, it can't be above that. So some of those packages, yeah, you're, you know, you're going to hit a certain age, you're getting reading glasses, you know, and I don't know if some of that packaging, if you realistically could make it bigger, right? But what's interesting is where we can or where we can change the way the packaging comes together, do we even know to, or think to do it? And I think that's what it comes down to. Sometimes you are beholden to the system, but have you even considered it? And has it been baked in? And I think that's where we're accountable. So when we teach design, what are we teaching is important. How much of what we teach gets, do we talk about the form and the structure and the visuals and the elements and the, you know, the aesthetic, we really talk aesthetically about the work, but how much do we talk about who, who needs it and who we're designing for? And so I think if that gets included in in the actual design education are we doing a good job of that you know what we're, we're we could go we could do a lot better than than i think what we're doing now but you know like there's i think there's there's so many different systems so i think it's like a multi-pronged approach because we have to look at the the other systems that are in play too so how do we make it acceptable you know like here we have somebody like a musician like carrie styles really changing up the perception of male fashion right? We all hear about him now. He's all on these covers of Vogue and he's wearing pearls and earrings and a lot of dress that would be, he's, he's shopping in women's sections. Now we had a, we had a moment of this in the seventies with music, right? With glam rock, but here we have this again now. Interestingly, why are we having this again in terms of representations of, of, of clothing? We had it in the seventies. It, it was a trend. And so is Harry Styles, is he going to be a trend or does he actually affect change? So I'm, these are the things I'm always kind of curious about, right? Like these bigger picture system things, like what are we doing as a society to, to make these things like um, desirable and, and seen? So I think, what are we accountable to? What are we as citizens or members of the community accountable to? And so I think there's like a lot of it's a multi-pronged kind of an issue. And I think, yeah, but again, I think designers, we have to start with ourselves. And I actually think that's on a lot of the educators, like 
what are we doing about that? And I, yeah, that's one area I think we could definitely do better. I know I'm seeing changes, but are they as fast and as urgent as we could make them? Um, if I'm critical of us, probably not as urgent as I think we probably should be doing it. Yeah. So this is my last question, a bonus question. Since I had you as my advisor, um, and I've always found you to have like a lot of empathy and you're very non-judgmental and inclusive, basically. And I find that you lead by example. So I wanted to get your opinion on this. There's a lot that's happened this last year and a lot of people have the right intention and they want to do good, but they don't necessarily know where to start. And they may not be intellectuals or academics as such like us and so they lack the information on history and so forth um, but they want to do the right thing what is one thing a thought or a belief that you would suggest to an average person on the street to help them begin shifting their mindset towards being more inclusive oh that's such a good question <laughs> like what I don't know like you don't Part of my go-to answer, I think, on something along these lines is, is it's like asking what kind of, what kind of stuff are you bringing into your, into your, into your space, and I think it can be simple as things like what TV shows do you watch, what movies do you watch, and ah, oh, the big one, like what books do you read, right? So I think it's about starting there, right? Like, do people have a relationship with stories from people who aren't from their world? And I think that's what I would say is like, really try to reach past your go-to things. Like it's really easy to kind of go to your staple forms of entertainment. But I think that could be a really accessible way for people to start to think outside of their own bubbles, right? Um, and that's something I always try to do. Like I'm always trying to um, read new authors or read new like read new new areas of things and but not everybody's a reader right like a, you if you hate reading that will be torture for you right then you I mean I love reading I love it it's uh and I haven't done I've only done all this academic reading but I can't wait to read like something not work related <laughs> it's gonna be amazing so one day I'm gonna do it um and read anything like even read things you don't believe in like I think that's that's great. I remember when, um, oh, this is terrible. Like, remember when Twilight came out and it was like super popular? Do you remember that book series of like the yeah. vampires all sparkly? And people made fun of me. They're like, Nancy, how can you be reading that? And I'm like, ah, oh, don't be so judgy. A lot of people are connecting with that book and I want to know why. So it's like being curious. It was really a hard book for me to read because it was not, it, oh, it was just not, it was not for me. It's everything I, I just, it was very hard but I got through it. Um, and I learned things. And I, so I thought to myself, you know, sometimes you just like, if something's popular, find out why, like, don't be so judgy. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like, I think that's what you got to do sometimes. Um, and I ended up having some really great conversations after reading, after reading that book, because, you know, people were super into it. So then I could say to people like, why, you know, you love this book, like, tell me about it. But if I hadn't read it, I wouldn't, I couldn't have the conversation. I was just being this jerk without even knowing what I was talking about. So you just, you have to experience some things in order to under, to understand the best you can, but then ask questions of other people. So I think, you know, it's about weighing in on and, and getting into spaces where you're uncomfortable, even if it's something as easy as reading Twilight. Like it seems so, like it's just a silly thing to say, but 
like it's it's kind of like being okay to follow your curiosity and read something you don't connect with or watch something that's not your taste but try to figure out why right like so i guess be reflective and i find sometimes the easiest way you can do that is just by watching entertainment and i remember a student once saying to me oh nancy like i just want to watch a show i don't want to critique it <laughs> and i was like i know but man there's so much in there if you if you dig for it right so i think even just starting with something as simple as a tv show or a video game you know start with netflix start with a book something that's accessible like what where like meet yourself where you're at do you know what i mean like where are you at and start there and i think that's been like that's for me the only way i could ever do anything i just i can't be i wish i was somebody else i wish i was this other amazing person who knew all these great things um but i'm just me so I'm going to start where I'm at, you know? So I, I found that's kind of been the pathway for me, like what's accessible to me and then kind of go from there. So I think that it, it builds a long way for you to start to hear other people's stories. And even if you don't like them, even questioning why you don't like them or questioning why you do like them, right? Like what, what are you getting out of this? And so that reflective kind of practice with things that are as simple as entertainment, I don't know, they, they seem to be, that could be a good way and then I would love, of course, to know how other people do it because that'd be cool to know too. But So meet yourself where you are, question things, follow your curiosity. Yeah. And, and, don't, and, and don't be embarrassed to read Twilight on the subway. You'll have a good conversation. <laughs> I love that advice. <laughs> right? Yeah, of course. If, some, if people like something, instead of like just critiquing, get to know why. Why do yeah. they connect? Yeah, like a lot of people really connected to that book, man. Like people, it was like a phenomenon. So that's the other thing too. Like as a designer, how can you not be curious what 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 people are drawn to? Like I think that's, you know, I think that's important. Like always be curious, right, about, about things. Otherwise the world gets pretty boring because you're just always going to back to the same places. Like aren't you curious about what else is out there? You know, and that's and that's a great way to learn. I know I think it's I guess a lot of things for me connect to story right like you really do like tell me a story and then I'll get to know you better because you're going to tell me how you see the world and I can only see the world through I'm so limited I can only see the world through my own eyes that's really boring so you're going to write something for me you're going to make something for me oh man I get to experience that I get to know who you yeah, that's great like all these people spending all their lives making things and you get to just enjoy them and study them and know it like man that's amazing This was really, really great, great and inspiring. Thank you very much, Nancy. I really hope that you got something meaningful from that chat. I definitely did. And if you would like to connect with Nancy, please check out the description of this episode. And you can find out more about Manifold and what we're up to by heading to our website, hellomanifold.com, or follow us on social media. The handle is at hellomanifold.com.